These days, we have got so much occupied with big things in our lives, big dreams, big accomplishments, that we don't really talk about or even experience the small pleasures of everyday life. And that's why I picked this book called Small Pleasures from the School of Life. It's a really short book and what it does is it takes a look at 52 of the really small pleasures and quite in detail uh, it helps us explore those feelings, those emotions. And uh, in my opinion, it's a wonderful mindfulness exercise that that you experience, that you, you, you become aware of these pleasures. And eventually it turns out that these small pleasures are not really small at all. They are really some kind of access to the great themes of our lives. And uh, of course, just like the other books from the School of Life, it has also written with the intention of offering you uh, some kind of therapy through reading. And that is the case here. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to narrate certain passages from the book so that you can understand and absorb what they're trying to tell you. So come with me on this journey as I narrate these passages to you. The fish shop. The fishmonger's window display is alluring. Yet, one does not normally go in. But when one does, one wonders why one doesn't visit more often. Waiting to be served, one is struck by the beauty and strangeness of the fish and sea creatures on offer on the beds of ice. The oyster that somehow generates its own home, rocky on the outside, suggestively smooth and polished within. For a moment, one contemplates the destiny of the soul. One of those eyes has to migrate round its head on the path to maturity. And the monkfish, whose huge toothy mouth and puny body are repellent to look at, but whose flesh is delicious when roasted and drizzled with olive oil. This seems so alien, but in a universe composed almost entirely of gas and rogue circulating in the endless nothingness of space, we are their cousins, with whom we briefly cohabit the surface zones of the earth. In the recent history of the cosmos, we shared common ancestors whose progeny became diversely the octopus, the sea bream or evolved gradually into solicitors, psychotherapists and graphic designers. Imagine spending this thing called life embodied in a lobster, encountering the world through its tiny peppercorn eyes which offer a field of vision much wider but less focused than ours. There would have been the momentous day one dug a burrow 
beneath a basalt rock in the soft mud of the sea floor in Whitton Bay of the Isle of Mule. Then there would have been the drama of shedding our exoskeleton. We would have, would have had to master the laborious process of reproduction when the male has to pierce the female's stomach to deposit his spermatophores. Finally, there was the catastrophic curiosity that two days ago tempted us into a lobster pot. The fish shop isn't simply a place to pick up calamari rings or some cord sticks. It is also a place of re-enchantment. We suffer a fatally easy tendency to become jaded. Things that are familiar lose their power to entice the imagination. Then, looking into the eye of a mulet or contemplating of the internal architecture of a skate fin, one is reconnected with the elegant and bizarre inventiveness of nature. We've been too hasty. We have overlooked almost everything. The world is full of fascination. There is so much to be explored. And we have been led to this renewed appetite by the head of a fish. Each item has been gathered from the chambers of the sea, distant rivers or prized from submerged rocks. The speckled trout were reared in a former gravel pit in Lincolnshire. The mackerel were caught by a trawler on the Dogger Bank and landed at Peterhead. The sea bass were hauled onto the cobbled pier at Crail and speeded in a refrigerated van down the M90 and the A1 with a brief halt in the HGV parking lot at Weatherby service station. And here they all are cleansed, gutted, chilled and artfully arranged. Nature has been civilized and made attractive by ice, metal, glass, tiles, slabs of marble and by constant cold water and the sharpest knives. The fish shop hints at an ideal that we would like perhaps to pursue more broadly. The sense that trouble has been rinsed away and the desirable good bit will be delivered into your life neatly wrapped in delicately glazed white paper. Visiting the fishmonger leads one to sketch little plans of moral reform. In another, slightly better life, one would go there all the time. We had become adept at repairing certain dishes. Being here, one makes fleeting initial contact with a latent self who poaches salmon, tosses a lobster salad, drizzles olive oil and whose friends come round for for bouillabaisse. There is a potential future version of oneself who starts to come to life in the fishmonger, who lives on light, nutritious, fishy meals and whose brain is bathed in their sympathetic, briny fluids. Life as a whole will remain radically imperfect, one knows. But if one took slightly more care around eating, even if lots of 
lots of bits of one's life were bad, if one could come in here and get some soul wrapped up by the man in the blue apron and go home and take the art of living more seriously, then one would be closer to being the person one should always have been. The fish shop pleasure originates in a very small points of departure, the smell of the salt and water, the frigid air wafting from the beds of ice, the silvery skin of the Atlantic salmon, and grows into a large idea, respect for civilizations that have more time for things that are simultaneously delightful and wholesome. Then in one of the chapters, they talk about stars. And let me narrate that chapter now. Stars. It's strange to see there are so many of them, though in some detached part of our brains, we know there are trillions of trillions of them. But we forget to look. We keep meaning to. But it might only be once or twice a year we find ourselves looking up on a dark night at our own silver of the universe. When we do, we feel ourselves pleasantly diminished by the majesty of what we contemplate. As we renew our connection with immensity, we are humbled without being humiliated. It is not just us personally and individually who are diminished in comparison. The things that trouble and bother us seem smaller as well. The sight of the stars, perhaps glimpsed above a suburban railway station, coming home late after an extended crisis in the office or from a bedroom window on a sleepless night, presents us with a direct sensory impression of the magnitude of the cosmos. Without knowing the exact details, we are powerfully aware that their light has been beaming down changelessly through recorded history that our great-grandparents must have from time to time looked on just the same pattern of tiny lights. They look so densely packed and yet we grasp that they are in fact separated by astonishing gulfs of empty nothingness, that around them circle unknown worlds, lifeless maybe, or perhaps teeming with alien vitality and harboring dramas of incomprehensive, incomprehensible splendor and tragedy, about which we will never know anything though perhaps in a hundred or a thousand generations our descendants will be at home even there. It is sublime because we are drawn entirely out of the normal course of our daily concerns and our thoughts are directed to matters in which we have no personal stake whatsoever. Our private lives fall into the background which is a contrastive relief to the normal state of anxious preoccupation with the local and the immediate. We are taught that interest in the stars is scientific, but it should be humanistic. 
If a child gets excited by the stars, parents feel that they should undertake a visit to the planetarium or make a stab at explaining thermonuclear fusion, gravity, the speed of light, red giants, white dwarfs and black holes. The presiding assumption is that an interest in the stars must be directed towards a knowledge of astrophysics. But very few of us will become science professionals. We can afford to be impressionistic because it never will really matter whether we can remember much of the detail. We are amateurs and we need something else. The stars matter in our lives because they offer a consoling encounter with grandeur, because they invite a helpful perspective on the brevity and littleness of human existence. Why don't we make more of this natural resource and plug ourselves more frequently into the Milky Way and renew this helpful pleasure? It's an issue that crops up so often around small pleasure. There's an accidental randomness to our encounters with them. We leave it to a chance. Ideally, we should schedule more appointments. We should put it in the diary, meeting with the stars Tuesday around 9.15pm after a dinner walk. Our collective model of a good life tends to focus on career progress and financial management. We don't typically weigh up whether a person went to the fish shop a lot, paid attention to islands or look very much at the stars. Yet, in fact, the regular appreciation of these and related small pleasures makes a major contribution to the elusive but crucially important notion of the quality of existence. Such pleasures can be termed small because they don't usually have big, immediate, dramatic consequences. We don't crave them. They come to us fairly quietly and are easily missed against a background of distractions and preoccupations. We don't have to do anything about them. And so, lovely though they are, they easily slip out of the view. One of the big tasks of civilization is to teach us how to better enjoy life. The romantic assumption is that we know intuitively and all we need is greater freedom to follow our instincts. The classical picture is that a pleasant life is in fact a deliberate accomplishment. It's a rational achievement that builds on the careful examination of experience and involves deliberate strategies to guide us more reliably to things that truly, truly please us.